Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. My name is Stephen Baker. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, uh, let's make sure to meet afterwards. So we're in the, well, we're closing in. We're almost to the end of our series through the book of Acts. And we're going to read through and cover two chapters this morning, chapters 21 and chapter 22. And as a matter of fact, we'll be covering two chapters each for our next three sermons. So today, next week, and the week after, whirlwind kind of tour through two chapters each. And the reason we're doing that, I'm trying to squeeze so much into single sermons, is because these next six chapters, starting with 21, 22, are very similar. They contain the Apostle Paul's testimony of his conversion and his calling and his ministry. And it's a story that he tells over and over and over again to different audiences. And the Holy Spirit has seen fit to record this for us and to put it here for us. So we have to read it over and over again. And there are lessons to learn. And the the, the outline of his testimony is almost always the same. Different audiences, different responses from different audiences, as we'll see. But the Holy Spirit has put this stuff here for us to, to chew on and to learn from and to teach us and to build our faith. Now, why does, the, uh, why does Luke include all of these testimonies uh, to all these different people as he goes through the book of Acts? Well, from the very beginning of Paul's life as a Christian and as an apostle, the Lord Jesus made it very clear what was in store for Paul. He made it very clear what was coming. Way back in chapter 9, right after, you remember, the Lord knocked Paul off his horse, blinded him with the light of his glory, changed his heart from a a hater of Christ in his church to, to, a, to a lover of Christ in his church. Jesus said this about Paul. Okay? You all with me? He says this. He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. All right, so did you catch that? From the very beginning of Paul's life as a Christian and an apostle, this is what Jesus says. He's going to stand before kings. He's going to stand before the Gentiles, the Jews, and kings. And he's going to witness and testify about the grace of God. And he's going to suffer. All right? Everything that we're going to see today and through the rest of the book of Acts, is exactly what our Lord Jesus said would happen to Paul. Every bit of it. There are no accidents here. There is no misfortune. There's no bad luck. Everything is going exactly according to plan. And as we're going to see, this is why the Apostle Paul can have such constancy and faith and calmness in the face of certain suffering. He knows he's in God's hands. He knows God is good. He knows whatever happens to him, the Lord Jesus will be honored and glorified. This is a powerful example and an encouragement for us. 
Now, I'm going to read two chapters, and I want us to, as I read, I want you to look for four things. Okay, so kids, you with me? I want you to look for four things. The first one, notice the love and the hospitality and the sweetness of relationship between the Christians. And kids, I want you especially to notice this, and I want you to tell me, after we read it, how many different places the Apostle Paul sleeps. Okay? So keep your eyes, you gotta count. We're gonna notice the Apostle Paul's faith and perseverance in the face of suffering, that's number two. Number three, how the leaders of the church, especially Paul, are concerned with the unity and the peace of the church. And then notice how important and powerful Uh, the testimony of God's work can be. So pay attention to these things. Let's go ahead and read it. Acts chapter 21 and 22. This is God's word. It's eternally true. When we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara, And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands, his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, he fell silent. We fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasin of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After we had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. 
And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrifice to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once we took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. When the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given them permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are, you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus, in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem, who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. 
But it happened that I was on my way, approaching Damascus about noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a man from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman? The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. And therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. But on the next day, Wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and sat him before them. This is the word of the Lord. We'll have to see what happens before the council next time. So, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's traveling by land and sea. We won't go over the map. But he lands finally in Jerusalem. And as I said, there are four things that I want us to learn from this passage. There's a lot more, but we've got to focus. The first is the love and the hospitality and the sweetness of relationship between the believers. Now, kids, how many place, different places did the Apostle Paul stay? 
five. Who said five? Yep, it's five. Then there's six if you count Jerusalem. All right? Over and over again, he's staying with who? Where is he staying? With Christians, with other Christians. At one point, he's staying with a, in a home for how long, did you notice? Yep, seven days. Now, Ben Franklin, right? We all know Ben Franklin. He said, um, fish and visitors. What? Stink after three days, and here you have him staying for seven. Now, this, this indicates... And Lazarus, yeah, now come on. Uh, <laughs> yes. This indicates something about the believers here. This is what Christians do. They open their homes to one another. There are no strangers in the kingdom of God, right? There are no strangers in the kingdom of God. No matter where Paul and his companions go, they're received with open arms, they're received with hospitality, spiritual fellowship, and genuine affection. And their families are involved in that work. And one of the places it says, do you remember? Their wives and their children are accompanying them. The, it's not just the men doing this. Listen, if homes are involved, you know the women and the children are involved. And this is very sweet. They love each other. This is what Christians do. This is what we should do. And I know, uh, actually, because I've been in a lot of churches and a lot of Christian communities, we, you, do this really well. But there's a place where Paul is speaking to the church in uh, Thessalonica. And he says, you know what? You love the brothers. I hear everywhere how well you love the brothers. But you know what? Excel still more. Excel still more. Open your homes. Uh, expand the tables. Clean out the guest rooms. All the boxes and stuff you got in there? I know. Clean it out. Put them to use again. Open your home. That's my first quick point. That's an easy, that's a quick one. Take note of this attitude and practice of sweet, open-handed, open-hearted fellowship, and let's be like that, okay? Excel still more. Second, look at the Apostle Paul's faith and perseverance in the face of certain suffering. So remember, the, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul is on a mission to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? He has organized a collection of money for the believing Jews, the Christian Jews. And the money he's collecting is from the churches among the Gentiles that he has planted, right? And so he is on a mission. The Jews in, in Jerusalem are in trouble. There's a famine, so food is scarce. There are, how many Jews are believing in Jerusalem? Did you catch that? Many thousands. The word is myriads. Many thousands of Jews have believed. We saw that on the day of Pentecost. It was one time when thousands believed, and then other times, thousands are believing at a time. And they're there, they're living there, and they're in trouble. They, they have no money, probably because they've been cast out of the synagogue and cast out of like the, the whole social support that they have. Maybe they've lost their jobs. There's no food. They need our help, Paul knows. And so he's made a collection. He's done the hard work. He's going to Jerusalem. 
He has a purpose. He has a mission. He has a task. He is intense about seeing it through. Now, here's the weird thing. No matter where Paul goes, the people who love him keep telling him what? Don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. Don't go. Whatever you do, don't go. Why? Because no matter where Paul goes, the Holy Spirit says, you are going to have trouble in Jerusalem, Paul, nothing but trouble. You're going to have trouble in Jerusalem. Now notice, what does the Holy Spirit not say? He doesn't say don't go. That's what his friends say. But remember, back in Acts 20, here's what happens. When Paul is talking to the elders in Ephesus, he says this, And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will, be, what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. No matter where I go, this is the same message. Bonds and afflictions await me. I know that's going to happen. We saw that in chapter 21. They kept telling him, don't set foot in Jerusalem. You have this weird thing with Agabus, the prophet who comes down to Philip's house, takes Paul's belt off of him, wraps himself, ties himself up with it, and says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. The man who owns this belt, this is what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Now, why did, or how did Paul respond to that? Over and over again, the Holy Spirit keeps saying this is what's going to happen. How did Paul respond to this? Well, how did his friends respond to it? His friends and his brothers kept saying, Paul, don't do it. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't even set foot there. It says that they're begging him not to go. Please, Paul, don't do it. Don't go to Jerusalem. They love him. They don't want him to go. But now again, how did Paul respond to this? Look at verse 12, 21, 12. When, he had, when we had heard this, the same message over and over again, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be bound but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And it says he would not be persuaded. And so finally, they say, okay, the will of the Lord be done. Let God's will be done. We've tried. <laughs> We've begged. And you're not hearing it. So the will of the Lord be done. Now, put yourself in in Paul's shoes for a second, all right? How easy would it have been for Paul to back down, to change his plans? What would you have done? You and I, certainly I, would have thought, you know, what am I supposed to do? The Holy Spirit keeps telling us what's gonna happen to me in Jerusalem. Why does he keep telling us this? Surely that means I shouldn't go, right? Why would he tell us that going to Jerusalem will be bad? Well, surely he wants me to change my plans. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of ways we can get the money to Jerusalem. Send it with someone else. 
have them come and pick it up. You know, uh, wait till it all blows over. Something, there's all kinds of ways we can figure out how to not have me have to go to Jerusalem. That's what we would have done, I think. Right, we're being wise. But no, what does Paul say? What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the name. I'm going to Jerusalem. Now, how did he do this? How did he think this way? This is a major point that we have to understand from this chapter, all right? How, what was it? How, what was he thinking? Is he a masochist? A masochist is someone who actually enjoys suffering. Does Paul enjoy suffering? He's no stranger to it, and no, of course he doesn't enjoy it. Is he a stoic? You know? Grit your teeth, grin. I guess stoics grin. Grin and bear it, you know? Just going to muscle through. No. No. The Apostle Paul is not a masochist. The Apostle Paul is not a Stoic. The Apostle Paul is a Christian. And so he's like his master. He's like Christ. Going to Jerusalem to suffer. Do you remember this? This is exactly what happened with Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what was waiting for him at Jerusalem. He talked about it all the time. He'd pull his disciples aside and say, look, here's what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem. Luke 18, he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we're going to Jerusalem. And all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he'll be handed over to the Gentiles, and he'll be mocked and mistreated and spat upon and after they have scourged him, they'll kill him. You guys ready to go to Jerusalem? He knows exactly what's going to happen, and he goes. And Paul is thinking, slave is not above his master, right? If my Lord had a mission to fulfill in Jerusalem for the sake of the people of God, and it cost him his life, how can I shrink back from walking the same path? That's what he's thinking. Remember what he said to the Ephesian elders back in Acts 20. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's told me what's going to happen, bonds and afflictions, but what? What does he say in Acts 20? Here's what he says. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Think of that. I don't count my life. I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. I don't care what happens to me. So that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, my Lord, he's given me work to do to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. This is my calling. This is, these are my orders. My, my life means very little to me. My Lord has given me a ministry, a mission, to testify of the gospel of God's grace before Gentiles, before kings, before the sons of Israel. I'm going to Jerusalem. 
Where does he get this freedom? This freedom from the fear of suffering. Because we are bound by the fear of suffering. Large and small. Aren't we? We are. Where does he get this freedom? Well, he has this freedom because he actually believes everything that he teaches. He actually believes it. One of the great temptations of any pastor or preacher or teacher is to what? To not practice what you preach. (laughs) Oh, the Apostle Paul practices it. So, for example, here's what he teaches. Here's just one little little tiny example of what Paul teaches, just pulled from the book of Ephesians, where he is talking about ultimate reality and what's going on, what God is doing, what God is doing for us, what God's doing for him, what he's doing for all believers, and what we are, what we have. Listen to what he says. This is just from Ephesians 1. He chose us in him. God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. We hear those words and we're like, yeah, okay. The Apostle Paul actually believed them. What did that do? What does that look like? What does it look like when you actually believe that kind of thing? He tells us, and he shows us by how he lives. So this is how he lives. He teaches this, and he lives it. This Philippians 3. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul, for Paul, (laughs) all this is true. It's actually true. Everything about God the Father, everything about Christ, everything about Christ and his work, everything about the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, future, promise, the certainty of life and the resurrection to come. He actually believes it. He actually believes it. The reign of Christ seated at the right hand of God, putting all of his enemies under his feet. He actually believes it. 
This is why he can say, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is why he can say, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. He's been bought with a price. The price is the precious and perfect blood of Jesus Christ, his Lord. He's been bought with a price. He's not his own. Now, you and I have been bought with the price too, haven't we? If you're a child of God, if you've embraced the gospel and believed it, you have been bought with a price, the same price Paul was bought with. But we are tempted, I am tempted, okay, to read this account of Paul's fortitude and his faith and his determination to press on straight, full throttle in the face of certain suffering. We're tempted to read all of that and think that Paul, you know, Paul is special, right? He's different. He's an apostle. He has a special gift to endure suffering. You know, that's, that's for him. That's for people like that. But not me. I'm not an apostle. I'm just a Christian. Well, here's the problem with that kind of thinking. The Apostle Paul himself says to the Philippians, the church in Philippi, Philippians 1, he says, for to you, just writing to the church, right? He's not writing to the apostles. He's writing to the church. To you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to what? to suffer for his sake. You, we like hearing about the gift of faith. Faith is a gift, by the way. It's granted to us to believe. So we like hearing about that. But he says, right along with that gift of faith comes what? The gift of suffering. You can't have the one without the other. Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter 2. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It means to follow him in suffering. You've been called for this very purpose. This isn't an extra. This isn't an add-on. This isn't a higher level. This is what it means to be a Christian. Is this our mindset? Are we ready to suffer and die for Jesus? How do we measure up to this? Do we believe that to live is Christ, but to die is gain? Do we believe that our future is secure? And so we're free to spend and to be spent for Jesus. Think about the things that we say we believe. All I have is Christ. 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, his only son, our what? Lord. I believe that he will come back to judge the, the quick and the dead, the resurrection, the life of the world to come, the forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. We say we believe these things. There's no trick. There's no special grace that you have to like tap in for this given to special people with a special calling. Is if God has given you the gift of faith, then along with that precious gift of faith, he has given you the gift of suffering. How are we doing? There's a third point I want you to see in this passage. Notice how the leaders of the church, especially the Apostle Paul, are concerned with the unity and the peace of the church. And this should be our concern too. This comes up in when he finally gets to Jerusalem and he sits down with, the, with James, kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and, and the brothers, the, the, the elders of the church. And he tells them what has been going on with him. We'll come back to that in a minute. And then... James and the elders say to Paul, Paul, this is wonderful. Praise God. They glorify God for all that God is doing through Paul. They call him brother. They accept him, right? And they say, Paul, brother Paul, we have a problem. We have a really big problem. And we think that you can help us. <laughs> right? What's the problem? The problem is that there are myriads of Jews who've become Christians. And all of them, they say, many of them, they are still zealous for the law. And so they do the things that they have always done. They go to the temple. The temple is still standing, right? Everything's running as normal up for now. It's not for long, but for now. They're going to the temple. They're, they're making vows. They're even offering sacrifices, not the kind that they think will cover their sins. That's not what this is about. They're circumcising their children. They're celebrating, you know, like the Passover and the, and, you know, the Sabbath. And they're doing all the stuff. They're zealous for the law. But they say, there's a rumor going around. And the rumor going around is that you, Paul, hate the law. That you despise the law. That you're teaching the Jews, not the Gentiles, but you're teaching the Jews that they can despise the law too. And that they should. They should just be done with all that stuff. And they shouldn't give any concern to it. To forsake Moses, he says, they say. Don't circumcise your children. Don't walk according to the customs. What are we going to do with this, Paul? Well, here's an idea. We've got some men. There are men. They're Christian men. They're believing Jews. And they made a vow. And the vow is probably what's called a Nazarite vow. This comes from Leviticus. You can read all about it. You make, often in times of trouble, in times of hardship, in times of great distress, you would make a vow. And you, part of that vow was you wouldn't cut your hair, you wouldn't drink wine, you wouldn't do anything that would be unclean. And it's a time period, and when the time period is up, you cut your hair, you bring the hair that you cut into the temple with a bunch of animals. It's like four or five different animals that they have to offer. This is a very expensive vow to pay. It's like, we got four of these guys. 
And what we would like you to do, Paul, is to go with them and pay their expenses. Get some skin in the game and be public about it. Everyone, all the Jews will look at you and they'll say, oh, okay, the rumors were wrong. He's, he's fine with this stuff. And as a matter of fact, Paul, Paul himself had made this exact same kind of vow, I think it's back in chapter 18. So clearly, he doesn't see a problem with this. So, there are a lot of questions. He does it, all right, he goes through with it. There are a lot of questions that come from this account. What was he doing? Was he right to go along with this plan? Was, was he caving into the pressure of James and the elders in Jerusalem? Did this violate Paul's own principles and conscience and teaching about the ceremonial law and, and circumcision and all that stuff? Is he just, is Paul all of a sudden gone wobbly on us? I believe the short answer to that is this, no. Paul is not caving into pressure, he's not going wobbly, he's not violating his principles. The Apostle Paul is just simply doing what he does. This is what he does. He doesn't live for himself. Think of this. He doesn't make all of his preferences a matter of principle. He's ready to suffer and to die for Jesus, for the sake of Christ in Jerusalem. Of course he's ready to do whatever he can to show that the Jews are wrong about him, that they're wrong about his approach to the law. As a matter of fact, he doesn't hate God's law. He loves God's law. It's good and righteous and true and it's precious to him. It is the tutor that leads people to Christ. It is the shadow that points them to Jesus himself, the substance. He doesn't hate the law. Now, he most certainly does believe that no man can be justified by the law. Justified by keeping the law. No one is justified by keeping the feasts and the fasts or by circumcision or by the ceremonies. No one is justified by obeying the Ten Commandments. And if you think that that's how you can be justified, then you are cursed and damned to hell. That's what he teaches. You think you can be justified by this stuff? You're accursed. Fallen away from God. But there's nothing wrong with believing Jews, remembering their deliverance from Egypt by sitting down at a meal. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? There's nothing wrong with Jewish parents circumcising their sons. The Apostle Paul himself says in Galatians 5, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Which means, go ahead, whatever. He says, what matters is faith working through love. That's what matters. So what is he doing? He's simply putting into practice what he says. That he does. He t actually tells us about this. In 1 Corinthians 9, he peels back the curtain kind of and, and tells us what he's thinking when he's in these kinds of situations. Because he's been around the, gen the Gentiles and now he's around the Jews. And how do you live like this, Paul? Well, he tells us. 1 Corinthians 9, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Huh. To the Jews I became as a Jew 
what he's doing here. To the Jews, sure, I'll do that. I became as a Jew so that I might win the Jews, so that they'll listen to me. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law, this has nothing to do with my merit. I'll be happy to do that. So that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though of course not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Pass the bacon. I'll eat whatever you give me. Not a problem. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I do everything for the sake of That's the one thing that I wrap my life around. I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that I might become a fellow partaker with it. Now, what is the lesson for us? What would it look like for us to live like that? No one's asking us to go into temples and make vows and do such and such. What would it look like for us here? We live among those who are not under the law. What, what would it look like for us to knock down as many hurdles as we possibly can to let people hear the gospel? Be willing to let go of your precious preferences. The things that we, that we, the hills that we love to die on. Why? Because we do all things for the sake of the gospel? Oh no, it has nothing to do with that. There are hills to die on, don't get me wrong. Paul is perfectly willing to die on all kinds of hills. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Mount Zion. Love the weak. Don't destroy the church for the sake of your freedoms. Make yourself a slave to all so that you may win more. Do all things for the sake of the gospel. What would that look like for us? Well, one last point. I promise you it'll be short. Number four. We see this over and over again in the next few chapters, so I'll keep it short. Notice how important and powerful the testimony of God's work can be. How, how powerful the testimony, speaking about what God has done. There are two examples of this here. Uh, one has a positive outcome, the other has a negative outcome. The one with the positive outcome is in 18 to 20. The following day, Paul went with, went with us to James. All the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one thing, or relate one by one, the things which God had done. He said, okay, here's what he did here, then here's what he did here, and here's what he did here. But wait, there's more. Here's what he did here. One after the other, one by one, all the things that what? That God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. 
He's just telling them the story about what God had done over and over again. And when they had heard it, they began glorifying God. Now, brothers and sisters, God does amazing things. He does them. He didn't, it's not that he did them. He does them. He does them here. He does them among us. He does them among you. Amazing things. And we need to get better at telling each other about the things that God has done. When we do, God is glorified. But we're, we're starting to get better at this. But listen, brothers and sisters, what do we talk about? What are you going to talk about as soon as we're done? When do we, like, just, you know what happened to me this week? Let me tell you about it. That's amazing. Praise God. You know, when do we do that? Do we do that? Other than on Thanksgiving? With a microphone? I mean, that's great. Don't get me wrong. But this is just has to be at the center of how we relate to each other. Now, the negative outcome of Paul's testimony is what we see in chapter 22. Don't worry, we're not going to read it. But just to remember what we saw, it is really amazing, actually. The Jews saw Paul in the temple, assumed the worst, formed a mob, tried to beat him to death. And after he's rescued by the Roman soldiers, what does he do? He, he asks to speak to the mob. And he gives his testimony. He doesn't waste a single opportunity to speak of what God has done, even to a hostile audience. This is not what we would do. This is not what I would do. I'm out of here. These people clearly hate me. They have put their hands on me. They're beating me to death. And the Romans come and rescue me. Right? Good riddance. Let me out of here. But no. Would you allow me to speak to them? Well, I guess so. And what does he do? He tells them of his sin, his past, the terrible sin of persecuting the church. He tells them about how the Lord Christ stopped him in his tracks and saved him. He tells them about his mission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. <laughs> and then what happens? Oh, don't say the G word. As, when, as soon as they heard that, right? As soon as the unbelieving Jews heard about Paul's mission from God to bring the good news to the Gentiles, they lose their minds. They raise their voices and they say, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. Sometimes that's what testimonies do. You tell your testimony, you talk to people who, who are hostile about the mercy of God to you and instead of saying, well, that's amazing, they say, you have lost your mind. This is what he's here for, though. He's here in Jerusalem to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God, to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus, so that all means he might win some. He is ready, in season and out of season, before a friendly audience, before an audience that wants his head. He's willing to talk to anybody. And he takes the opportunity. He does not belong to himself. He belongs to God.
Brothers and sisters, this is our calling. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. What would it look like for you and me to wrap our lives around not the things that are dear to us, right, but around the gospel? What does that look like? What changes? What difference does that make if we actually believe it? Just believe it. The Apostle Paul is always saying, be imitators of me. Well, here's the way. Just believe what he says. There are consequences of belief, right? If you believe this, then this has to follow. And this is what follows. Wrap your life around the gospel. This isn't about you. What's that look like? You young people, what does that look like for you? Testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. This is our calling. What are we going to do with our lives? Let's pray. Father, would you please help us and make us actually believe all the things that we say we do. Help us to be Christians. Lord, we, we ask in Christ's name. We ask for Anne as well, Lord. Please have mercy on her. Strengthen her. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.